0: Hello and welcome to The Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by The Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, climate change, the law and economics. And Richard, pretty much ever since Donald Trump won the presidency, the real aggressive policy moves on climate change – have sort of shifted from the federal level to progressive states and cities. And the most recent example of that that we've seen is a lawsuit that was recently filed by New York City and a number of California municipalities, including San Francisco and Oakland. And this is a suit against five major oil companies, BP, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, and Royal Dutch Shell, and a suit for contributing to the increased risk of global warming now we can get to the policy side of this in a moment but i just want to start with the legal side you wrote an analysis of this recently for an organization called the manufacturer's accountability project uh, analyzing the fact that this case relies on the law of nuisance for the non-lawyers listening explain what that is and how well you think it applies here
1: That's right. Well, every term like this starts with an ordinary meeting. And when you have a neighbor next door who's bothering you, you say that the fellow is a nuisance. And what you mean by that is he's not trespassing against your land. He hasn't entered it, but he's created noise on the one hand or odors or filth or some kind of disturbance. And what you are is upset about the fact that this schmutz, this dirt is coming across the line. And these nuisances are very protean. In some cases, it may be a huge burst of stuff. In other cases, it may be a long list of low-level interferences. In some cases, they pique your anger. In other cases, they're too small to be mattered. Uh, The definition of a nuisance, which is any any invasion of any particle, means that every time you talk, it could be a nuisance. So there's a kind of a minimum threshold that you have to cross before the law will uh, consider this kind of thing. And then once it's done, you have to worry about the choice of remedy? Do you give damages for past harms? And do you enjoin the behavior? And if you're giving an injunction, what is it that you enjoin? Do you enjoin the operation of the factory or only enjoin pollution coming across the line? This body of law is tremendously complicated and tremendously sophisticated. And uh, what it tries to do is to optimize the interaction between neighbors. Uh, when you're dealing with a public nuisance, the basic theory of liability remains the same and all the difficulties of enforcement with respect to these inefficiencies remain the same, but you've got one other additional complication. Now, instead of sending the dirt, the filth into the um, neighbor's land, you send it either into the air or into the public waters or into public lands and there is no private owner. But there are lots of private individuals who have access to this particular medium. And the question then is, how do you start to control uh, those sorts of nuisances that harm the public? And the early version of this law dates us back as far as 1536. And it's an amazingly sophisticated decision. It started with a case in which somebody blocks a public road. And the answer is, if you're one of the many people on the public road who is delayed, you do not get uh, general damage, as it's called. But if you're somebody who's injured when you bump into this thing in a way that would allow you to recover, you can get your special damages. And the theory is, uh, for the general damages, you use a public enforcement mechanism. Mechanism to clean away the um, obstacle and to impose a fine upon the parties who created it. Uh, so that what you do is you now have two systems of nuisance law side by side. Uh, the key thing to understand about all the traditional nuisances is uh, the requirement of a private nuisance namely that there be some kind of emission, release, or discharge from one party to another, carries over in all the traditional uh, public nuisance cases, but it's not satisfied. In this case, we are talking about a potential action against a fossil fuel company or a whole set of them.
0: Let me ask you about the sort of the macro policy concern overhanging this, Richard, because when it comes to regulating carbon emissions, whether you're trying to do it via lawsuit like this or regulatory mechanisms or a cap-and-trade system that was the legislative proposal from earlier in the Obama years, whatever medium, there is an enormous and difficult question that has to be answered as you're designing those policies, which is what is the right level of emissions? How does one even go about trying to answer that?
1: Well, I mean, this is an extremely tough question, and it requires, to some extent, a unified solution, which means that states proceeding independently of the federal government create a problem, and states, nations proceeding independently of each other have the same problem. Uh, So what you first do is don't worry so much about the institutional design. What you try to worry about is what you think to be the optimal level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And this turns out to be a beastly difficult question. Uh, There are some people who say the moment you get above 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you are going to face danger. And there are other people who say, well, you may increase to some extent the increase with respect to temperature, uh, but you're also going to increase at the same time the amount of greenery that grows because it turns out carbon dioxide has a stronger effect on plant growth than it does on temperature, but it has an effect on both of these things. Uh, So what you're trying to do is essentially when you're going forward is not only to worry about the increased cost of the carbon dioxide, but you're also trying to worry about the benefits of any. And there's just an enormous dispute as to exactly how that ought to be resolved. Uh, What the one thing you can say for sure is that you don't want to resolve this through ad hoc law schools that individual cities or states bring against a subset of the suppliers because there's no way that you could coordinate these things. And here there's a kind of a technical Rickle that needs to be taken into account. A public nuisance suit was brought against the American Electric Company uh, by the state of Connecticut, and this is an action brought against an emitter, not a supplier of stuff to emitters. And the federal Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, said. Look, as far as we're concerned, at the federal level, we're not going to allow public nuisance suits to interfere with a uniform administrative policy where we try through the EPA and other organizations to choose that level. And so what happens is every one of these plaintiffs understands that they can't bring a federal suit. So what they now decide to do is to bring state court actions to deal with the same thing uh we do not know whether these things are preempted that is whether the federal situation blocks i hazarded the opinion when the first case came down in 2011 and would repeat it again today uh, that i think that these things are preempted but then somebody says well what does the doctrine of preemption look like and it turns out this is a pretty old doctrine Uh, formulated in its major issue after the change in constitutional law in 1937 when the federal government had huge powers under the commerce clause to regulate manufacturing activities which it never had before. So the concurrent jurisdictions of the state and the federal government, right, um, started to increase. And the preemption doctrine was an effort in 1946 to cut back at least a little bit on the federal dominance. And so Justice Douglas, in a case called Santa Fe against Rice, said, look, there are three exceptions to federal dominance. Um, uh, That's the general exception to the federal dominance, except where, then he gave three exceptions. One was of the situation where there's a direct conflict between the federal and the state law. Another one turns out that if you try to give uh, state actions of one form or another, it will frustrate the federal scheme. And the other one is you think the federal scheme is sufficiently broad that it occupies the entire field. And given the intensity of the regulation and the inconsistency going back and forth, it seems pretty clear to me uh, that the field has been occupied. So that's one threshold question that you have to come across Uh, which is not addressed in these complaints, but will surely be raised. But the other problem is the one that I hinted, and it has two dimensions to it. One is you're not getting all of the potential sources of emission. Uh, There's foreign emission, there's coal emission. Uh, To put it in perspective, the United States today uh, emits about 14% of the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere from a whole variety of sources, of which – coal, not oil, not natural gas is one. China emits twice as much. In terms of units of production, American is much more efficient than is China. And so the first place to cut back would be China, not the United States. And if you're trying to figure out the Chinese connection uh, to the temperature increases, whatever they be, if you're trying to figure out the European, the Indian, and so forth, uh, the American situation, as I said, is 14%. And the oil companies are probably a pretty small fraction of that. Uh, So you're saying, in effect, is we think if we go upstream against somebody who supplies, say, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide when used downstream by one or two or three percent, we're going to solve the problem. It's an incredibly disproportionate burden. It's also a little bit silly because if you're trying to think about it, you sell uh, crude oil uh, to somebody else. It's refined in a thousand different ways and used by all sorts of different people with different emissions levels. And the great advantage of regulating downstream is that you can target it to emissions rather than to amount to stuff that's shifted. And if you want to deal with the upstream situation, uh, what you do is what you do with, for example, uh, a simple rule do we require ethanol to be mixed with gasoline or do we not? And do we take into account the global warming implications when we make those decisions? So, this lawsuit brings it to the wrong level of the state and it has the wrong institutional issues associated with it, a damage action. Because what happens is you can't possibly say, look, we're going to enjoin the shipment of fossil fuels all the way around the United States. And indeed, all of these municipalities would die in a nanosecond if they decided to say, gee, we think all fossil fuels are terrible. We're going to shut down our dump trucks. We're going to shut down our concrete construction. We're going to shut down our underground train, our airports, and everything else. So even they are thinking about abating, but they don't know what the appropriate level would be. And given all of that kind of legal uncertainty, this kind of cause of action just in my mind makes no sense at all.
0: At the risk of oversimplifying a little, on the spectrum of beliefs, okay. <laughs> on the spectrum of beliefs about climate change, there are on the one end people who are horrified and think that this represents an existential threat to the planet. On the other end, there are people who will tell you that it's basically a hoax. And in the middle, you have a camp uh, increasingly visible who have now come to be called lukewarmists who will say essentially, yes, it's likely happening and there will be consequences. But they are all things that humans can adapt to and as such we ought not to – panic and throw out all the economic consequences. Mm. Where do you place yourself along that spectrum?
1: Well, just speaking just for myself, I'm more inclined to be with the lukewarmest, but the question is just how lukewarm turns out to be. And, you know, we have very good information about class climate changes, uh, temperatures, and carbon dioxide levels, we have much weaker information about causation, and everybody worrying about the future asks whether or not there's going to be an inflection point, so that when you get to a certain level, all of a sudden things are going to zoom so it 's not just a question of what the past record is it 's a question of whether or not you think the past is prologue to the future, and that 's why I have the distinction. so let me just sort of mention one of the documents that was relied on in the San Francisco complaint to show you what the levels of uncertainty are and I'll I'll fill in some of the background. What they say in the complaint is between now and the year 2100, uh, it turns out that we can see an increase in sea rise around San Francisco between roughly six inches and six feet. Well, you know, you can do the math. That's a 12-fold difference. The thing also to understand is wholly independent of any recent changes, sea level rises have been pretty constant at five inches per centimeter. For century for a very long time. And so if you take the bottom estimate, what it says, nothing's happened. You got an extra inch in there. You take the top estimate, you're going over the top and you really have a major crisis. Well, when you start looking at the global models, what do they predict and how much do you take it? And again, there's just a fierce difference between the two sides on this. The alarmists, as the detractors call them, tend to think it's a monocausal situation in which carbon dioxide sort of governs just about everything and it has dramatic effects. And the folks on the other side to which I'm more inclined say, yes, carbon dioxide has an effect, but remember, um, Uh, water vapor is a greenhouse gas. Remember, there are volcanoes that can move in particular cases. Uh, there can be underground out, um, aqueducts which empty out so that land sinks instead of water rising and so the difference between the two schools is often on the extent to which you weigh in local effects as against national effects or at global effects to see the way in which this thing goes on and so the point for this particular situation is if you're talking about estimates of 20-fold differences do you make any investments now when you're not sure which way that line is going to go that's also a very hard question and the point about this is is given the level of dissensus, a lawsuit and multiple inconsistent law schools in individual states are not going to get you anything close to a comprehensive plan. Uh, So I think what one has to do is to recognize the diversity of estimations and then pick the institutional strategy that will allow you over the next 10 or 20 years to come to the optimal point. Um, And this is extremely difficult um, to do as a technical matter, and you're not going to be able to do it if individual experts get inconsistent verdicts in individual places. Um, And so the basic intuition that you have about all of this is that you need to do it in some sense through a centralized mechanism in the United States. There is a question about whether you do it through a global agreement like the Paris Accords. And of course, you go to that and there's an enormous disagreement of whether we should have pulled out or not. And there is an enormous disagreement as to whether or not you want major American adjustments today when the Chinese are given a 15-year grace period, even though their production or the carbon dioxide production is increasing. So, doing this by individual lawsuits is not the way to get the appropriate global perspective. And so, I think the correct thing to say is uh, you've mentioned these three positions, and I don't think you have to choose amongst them to decide that this is an inappropriate way to deal with it. What you do is you go into various legislative and treaty forums and you argue the thing out there to see which way it's going to happen. One can say with a good deal of confidence that most of the predictions that were made in previous times have been too pessimistic. That is, they overestimated the amount of temperature changes that have been observed. You go back to the 70s, and Mr. Ehrlich had massive starvation by 1980 and so forth, which never started to happen. There was a famous projection by a man named Hansen, who had several different ones, but one of his models had everything essentially ending now. We have Al Gore, who is going to say there was no ice in the Arctic Ocean, and although there's a little bit less, but not as much as some people have thought less uh, than it was 12 years ago, essentially all of the predictions that were made in the inconvenient truth were overstated. So we have to have a little bit of humility in this. And a lawsuit is a kind of a once and for all type situation. What you really need is a constant monitoring adjustment, because it would be foolish to make extensive investments now that are going to depreciate, if in fact the climate change and the water increase levels are going to be later down in the cycle, and it would be imprudent not to do something now if we thought the threat was going to take place in the next five years. And even if you look at the people who are very concerned about global warming, there's an enormous disagreement among them as to what the window of opportunity is. Is it very short or is it very long? And as I said You can't resolve a thing like that on this particular uh, podcast, but what you can say is you can't resolve it either by trying to do this through litigation.
0: The last thing that I'll ask you, overshadowed by the lawsuit a bit, is the fact that Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, which is one of the cities that's party to the suit, is also saying that the city is going to sell off billions of dollars in fossil fuel investments from the city's pension fund. This has been a big push on the left over the last few years to get – institutional investors to do this very thing. Analyze the wisdom of that move for us.
1: Well, the first thing is if you sell off this stuff and you're not a shareholder, then you have no influence internally as to the way in which you uh, deal with company policy. And by and large, in this particular case, it's a real mistake. The second thing is there's a huge amount of grandstanding associated with this because Mr. de Blasio did not say he's not going to buy any fossil fuel products because he knows if he does, he's complicit in global warming. He could not run his city if it turned out he did. And the third thing that you have to do is, financially, this is bad for the city if it leads to an under-diversification of its portfolio. Given the enormity of the global market with respect to oil company shares, it will probably simply result in only negligible price changes one way or another. Uh, So I think the correct thing to say is we understand why he's doing it politically. But if you're trying to ask whether this improves the health and welfare of the city of New York, the answer is no. And I would say by way of comparison, the same thing is true of the lawsuit that Eric Schneiderman has brought against ExxonMobil, right, uh, for essentially overstating its reserves, uh, it turns out global warming is not an important factor in calculating reserves because the long-term effects when discounted down to present value are completely dwarfed uh, by changes in prices. Oil is now up to $70 a barrel. It was down to f- – $30 a barrel, or even lower than that about a year and a half ago. Uh, these price changes absolutely swamp the possibility of some kind of legislation or litigation, which is not going to take place until the generation or so after it. And so that too has a kind of a grandstanding situation. I wish this discussion had more science associated with it and less politics. I wish there was less of a cleavage between the libertarians who tend to be on the lukewarming side and the progressives who are pro- on the uh, alarmist side, uh, so that you could try to come up with a kind of a coherent policy. Um, my expertise is in institutional design. It is not in global science. And what I can say is that these lawsuits are a step backwards in trying to get an intelligent regulatory framework uh, to deal with the very contentious global warming issue.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution.